Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. A quick warning. If you are listening to this podcast with young children around, this would be a good time to send them out of the room or perhaps to boarding school. We're about to hear an example of a type of writing that is not typically read to a live audience. Okay, so that I've got exactly where I need it. And I can't believe I'm going to be reading this on a recording. This is Randy Flanagan. She's a regular person with a regular job and also a writer and a former writer of Twilight fan fiction. And I guess I'll, I'll just go ahead and read it. <laughs> um, okay, here I go. Love. Fish. He continued with a lascivious grin. He lowered his pants to the ground and kept rattling off words. Rose. Curly. Furry furnace. Slop. Velcro love triangle. I opened my legs wide to give him some inspiration. Slice of heaven, he groaned and pulled himself out of his boxers. Oh, wow. Shit. Fuck, I wanted to touch it. It was so perfectly proportionate and straight. Not too long or thick, but plenty big. He could have been a model if such an occupation existed. You get the idea. It's a scene of mutual masturbation in which Edward recites a veritable Roger's thesaurus of synonyms for the female genitalia. Slowly, part of me felt guilty, like I was defiling Jane Austen's Mr. Darcy or some shit. Whatever, though. Everybody fucks. Sex is the great equalizer. And scene. <laughs> so he's got hundreds of years of euphemisms. Yes. Accumulated. <laughs> yes. Over all his life on the planet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, th- this came up. This is a question that came up, and I feel like you're the, you're the person to ask for for an opinion on it. Is it canon that he's like a 200-year-old virgin or however old he's supposed to be? Yeah, he's a virgin. He's a 107-year-old virgin. That's canon. I mean, that's a that's a choice for sure on Stephanie Meyer's part. Um, I mean, they try to explain it away that a vampire really stops aging emotionally at the age that they died. He died at 17. What mates for life? Geese? Wolves? I'm not sure. Anyway, they mate like that. They mate for life. So the idea that he hadn't found his life mate yet until Dishwater Brown Bella, um, <laughs> that's why he had never had sex. You know, it, it's interesting that you went about it the way that you did, because in addition to being a sex scene, it's almost like, let's say all the things that we're not saying in this work. Yeah, it, it, it was kind of like an ejaculation of words. <laughs> 
It was also me breaking my proverbial cherry as hard as I could, because if I was going to write in this world, I I didn't want to go about it half cocked. Hey, hey, <laughs> I'm getting back into that headspace now. <laughs> yes, um, but it, it was a really good exercise for me because it made me unafraid. Because after this chapter, I became really free with the way I wrote. Here comes the fucking podcast from Higher Ground. It's the Big Hit Show. I'm Alex Papadimus. Twilight fans, boy, do they love Twilight. But there is only so much Twilight in the world to love. And what do you do as a fan when you get to the edge of the canon, when you've consumed all there is to consume? You start creating fan fiction and other forms of gray market content. You can even make your favorite characters do stuff to each other. Chapter 4. Fade to Black. Have you given any thought to writing an alternate ending uh, to the most recent work as some of your readers have demanded? Oh, no. No. Um, are they demanding that? <laughs> there, there are some people online who are uh, organizing a sort of complaint campaign and they, they demand a new ending to the recent um, book. You know, that's for those fans, I would say, you know, I love your enthusiasm, but this is the ending that I wanted to write. And if there's a fantastic story in your head, go and write it down, because that's the thing. A lot of these kids are so creative. And there may be a story in that for them that they can, you know, make into their own world and their own characters. Go for it. That, of course, is Stephanie Meyer, the creator of The Twilight Saga. In that interview, she's talking to Time Magazine in 2008. Stephanie declined to be interviewed for this show because once you've sold over 100 million books, you can ease off on the promotion if you want to. Meyer is not one of those reclusive Elena Ferrante, J.D. Salinger kind of writers, but in the years since Twilight became a phenomenon, she doesn't really lower the drawbridge except when she's got a new book coming out. She and her production company Ficklefish Films have an online presence, but she's not personally on social media, which in 2020 does basically make her Emily Dickinson. The point is, unlike a lot of authors, and especially a lot of big-time contemporary authors, she is not out there in front of the work telling people how to interpret it or saying problematic things in public like J.K. Rowling. It is said that the silence of God is the very reason why faith in a supreme being flourishes and persists. And, in a sense, the relative quietness of Stephanie Meyer is a big part of Twilight fandom persisting and thriving the way it has. And her absence from the discourse around Twilight has also created a permission structure for fans to create their own Twilight content. People have really run with this. They've created their own merch, their own memes where like Bernie Sanders is Bella once again asking you to make him a vampire. And even original songs. Always had reasons to shut people out Seemingly silent the buzz of a crowd Knowing that no one could touch This monster I'd become You're listening to a little bit of Silence, Edward's soliloquy by Cherish Danae, who became kind of famous in the Twilight fandom when this song, sung obviously from the POV of our favorite sparkly immortal vampire guy, 
found its way to Stephanie Meyer or at least stephaniemeyer.com. I get a message from at Ficklefish Films, Stephanie Meyer's team. They're like, hey, Stephanie heard your song and she really loved it. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I'm dead. Cherish has also written parodies of Driver's License, the 2021 hit by teen pop phenomenon and confirmed Twilight stan Olivia Rodrigo, with lyrics paying tribute to various Twilight characters from Jacob Black to Charlie Swan to the cactus that Bella brings with her from Arizona to Washington. One of my friends was like, you should write one about the cactus. And I was like, I can't write one about the cactus. And then I decided I would write one about the cactus. That's right. Nothing in the mythos is too minor to inspire creativity even a prop succulent that appears in like two scenes. And people were like commenting, like, I didn't think I was going to feel bad for a cactus. I was like, I didn't think people were going to feel bad for a cactus either. Fans like Cherish give the lie to the lazy notion of Twihards being passive receivers mindlessly screaming over whichever sexy monster guy they think is the most sexy. In their hands, fandom becomes a creative energy. And while that energy goes in a lot of different directions when it's unleashed, one of the places where it's been most concentrated for over a decade is in the world of fan fiction. Quick, think of anything that is popular. Any TV show, any band, any book, any cartoon, any game. If it has a following, someone has probably written fan fiction about it. For instance, if when I asked you to think of something, you guessed The Mandalorian, the 70s TV cop show Starsky and Hutch, George Orwell's 1984, 30 Rock, or the video game Death Stranding, there is fan fiction about all of those properties on An Archive of Our Own, a massive nonprofit repository of fan-created writing. Fan fiction predates the internet, but as an online literary subculture, it has grown exponentially as the world itself has gotten more and more online. In 2020, AO3, as it's known, registered its 3 millionth user. That December, the site logged 1.7 billion page views. The Toronto-based fanfiction platform Wattpad says it reaches more than 90 million people who spend 23 billion minutes per month reading stuff there. Subculture almost doesn't seem like the right word anymore. At its most basic level, fanfiction represents an attempt by readers to solve the most fundamental problem we can have with any work of art we love. You've consumed all that the book is going to offer you. There is nothing more. This is author J.J. McAvoy, who started out as a fan of, among other things, Twilight. I would read these stories over and over and over again to the point where my mind was just like, I don't need to read it. I know it back to front, but I still want more. But what am I going to do? There's no more. The writer's not writing anymore. I don't know. I want to know more. That thirst for additional Twilight-based reading experiences put J.J. and countless other fans-turned-writers on a path to a creative life. J.J. exhausted Stephanie Meyer's universe, went online, found fan fiction in which that universe kept on going, and eventually started writing her own stuff. She's now self-published something like 25 books. Some of these writers may be doing it because they want to be the next Stephanie Meyer, but all of them are doing it because it's fun. They're paying homage to Twilight by creating the Twilight they'd like to see. You just add to it or expand to it or just you want to change it. Change them a little bit to your own liking, to your own story. This is Erica Marakin. She first picked up Twilight as part of an attempt to get her four kids interested in reading and soon found herself writing original fiction for the first time since high school. For whatever reason, she found it hard to write vampire stories, so she put the characters into different scenarios. It could be movie stars. It could be a race car driver. 
It could be an engineer. I think I had one Bella that uh, can see ghosts, uh, <laughs> that kind of thing. As I started to investigate this, I was surprised by the amount of adult fan fiction that existed surrounding Twilight and explicit fan fiction. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There is a lot. For some reason, it's just what everybody wants to read. People want more of the plot with the smut, so. <laughs> okay. Yeah. If that's what everybody wants to read, uh, have you ever uh, given the people what they want? Oh, of course, yes. <laughs> From the very beginning, so yeah. So, yeah. I don't mean to imply that the majority of fanfic falls into any one genre category, but a lot of it is erotica. If a thing is popular enough to inspire fanfic, chances are some percentage of that fanfic is porny. I don't want to say that while working on this show, we lost a whole afternoon to erotic Starsky and Hutch fanfiction, but I'm also not going to say that didn't happen. Starsky grabbed Hutch by the back of the neck and slid his hand up into Hutch's hair. Hutch gave in, staring at him all the way until their lips met. He kissed Hutch's eyelids and the spot between them. And just for good measure, his... Anyway, there is even Harry Potter erotica. Despite J.K. Rowling asking people not to write stuff like that because her characters are children, as are a lot of her readers. Stephanie Meyer, on the other hand, has not laid down ground rules like that about her work which has made the Twilight Saga that much more of a playground for the erotic imagination of her fans. Which is interesting, because of course, Stephanie Meyer is also a person of faith. She's a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, aka the Mormon Church. She has a degree from Brigham Young University. And while Twilight's human characters aren't written as being Mormon, they mostly hew to Mormon values. Nobody in the books even drinks coffee. The idea that Meyer's fictional universe would inspire a pornucopia of writing unsafe for any workplace might seem ironic, but not really. Erica Marakin again. The way it was written, the whole fade to black and the, the lead up to it is the reason why there's so much fan fiction and mature fan fiction. Fade to black is what it's called in fan fiction when a sex scene between two characters is unmistakably implied but not depicted. It's like the moment in a movie where the camera averts its eyes and we cut to the characters sitting up in bed, maybe smoking a cigarette, and we all know what just happened. That's how it goes in the fourth Twilight book, Breaking Dawn, during Bella and Edward's honeymoon when they finally consummate their relationship in the warm tropical sea off Isle Esme. This moment was so perfect. There was no way to doubt it. His arms wrapped around me, holding me against him. It felt like every nerve ending in my body was a live wire. Forever, he agreed, and pulled me into deeper water. When this happens in the movie Breaking Dawn Part 1, it leads to an actual love scene between Robert Pattinson and Kristen Stewart. But in the book, Stephanie Meyer cuts immediately from the moment before the moment she's been building up to for the previous three entire books to the next morning, and Bella waking up in a bed that has hilariously been destroyed by the force of Edward Cullen's vampire-strength lovemaking. That's a fade to black. Twilight erotica is a whole genre of online writing that you could say grows from fans' frustration at being denied that scene. Yeah, it's just the way it was written made everybody's imaginations <laughs> want to keep going, and they wanted to see it, and they wanted to read it.
One thing you start to notice if you dig into Twilight fanfiction, like, at all, is how much of it seems to be about swapping in a different protagonist to replace Bella Swan. Like, it's Bella's sister, or her half-sister, or her cousin, or some other new character who meets all the Stephanie Meyer characters and usually handles things differently. So I always saw myself as in place of Bella. Writer J.J. McAvoy. Even though she looks nothing like me, and I think this is the case for a lot of people, and especially a lot of readers, is even though the character may not look like you at all in any aspect, you just start to wonder, what if this happened to me? What would I do? The things that you were frustrated about or the things that you were like, oh, I wish this didn't happen. All of a sudden in fan fiction, you can just change it. And I think that's why you can step into it easily because there's nothing that's really Bella about her. Like there's nothing that you can say, oh, this is so typically Bella Swan. She exists by not existing almost. This again is writer Randy Flanagan, who read some of her Twilight fanfic at the top of this episode. The weakest thing about Twilight was Bella. I wanted to make Bella better. And I got to make her a wholly developed character and steal the universe, if that makes sense. Randy's fanfic Becoming Bella Swan is really more like fan metafiction, a darkly comedic 89,000-plus word novel in which a woman named Isabella Flanagan wakes up in a psychiatric ward inside the fictional world of Twilight, having somehow quantum leaped into the body of Bella Swan. She's not me, but she's like my id. And she's basically me taking matches and setting the Twilight universe on fire. What form does that burning down take? Well, first of all, she tears Edward apart. She takes everything that Bella loves about Edward and just says, you know what? She calls him a feathery stroker. She calls him like, you know, like an emo (laughs) douchebag. She calls him out for the things that make his character what it is, you know, like um, the whole Victorian sensibility about him. She also does things that Bella definitely wouldn't have, like she has sex with Jacob. She calls out everybody for leaving her. Like she, she, Bella Flanagan gives Bella Swan a voice to scream with. And as you recall, there's a lot of sex, which again is so not Stephanie Meyer. Obviously, a story like this one could not live in this form outside the legal gray zone of the fanfiction internet. But there is one very high-profile example of a piece of explicitly adult Twilight fanfiction not just finding an audience, but blowing up to the point that it not only sees print as a best-selling series of actual books from the same publishing house that puts out Toni Morrison and Cormac McCarthy's novels, but also becomes a film franchise that rakes in over a billion dollars globally and inspires a Marlon Wayans parody movie, the truest marker of mainstream ubiquity. Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh yes, you've heard me talk about this before. This book has sold almost 20 million copies, and now sex toys like those described in the book are flying off the shelves. Cheryl, is it true? Are items flying off the shelf at your business? Yes, it is absolutely true. That's right. The worldwide sexy book phenomenon known as the Fifty Shades Trilogy started out as a piece of erotic Twilight fan fiction called Master of the Universe, a reimagining of Twilight in which Edward Cullen, instead of being a vampire, was just a weird rich guy, and the naive young woman he introduces to his fancy BDSM pain room was Bella Swan. Author E.L. James, writing under the nom de plume Snow Queen's Ice Dragon, published Master of the Universe in installments between 2009 and 2011 on the website fanfiction.net. And then, in 2011, she sold the completed story as a novel after changing things like the character names and, 
well, mostly the character names. This is an increasingly common but controversial practice in fan fiction. Find and replacing names and other details is known in the community as filing off the serial numbers. Taking your fanfic off the internet entirely to put it out for profit is known as pull to publish. Randy Flanagan jokingly refers to Master of the Universe as the fic that shall not be named. It, it really um, created a divide in the Twilight fandom or the fictum. There was a lot of people at the time that saw that she had made a lot of money off of it and started to pull their um, fan fiction and do a find and replace and, and publish as original fiction. However, my opinion on that is fan fiction is something that is part of the community. It was done for free. You really shouldn't profit on it. The three Fifty Shades books went on to become the three best-selling novels of the 2010s. The film series, starring Dakota Johnson and Jamie Dornan, made, again, over $1 billion at the box office. There's a lot of labor that goes into fan fiction, not just from the writer, but also from all the people that do the banners, do the beta reads, the edits, the feedback, and they don't get compensated for their work when the writer pulls to publish. So it felt like a bit of a betrayal, and she was the one who started that. Over and above the compensation question, you can see why some people in the fanfiction community feel betrayed when somebody does pull to publish. Filing off the serial numbers, disguising the origins of this work in order to make it seem like quote-unquote real writing, obscures what's great about it, which is that it's derivative but also transformative. Fanfiction speaks in a critical voice that is simultaneously and indisputably a language of love. That's what a lot of fanfiction really was. It was, you know, it was loving the universe and loving the characters enough to want to fix them. So in that, it's, in that way, it's a really big compliment to, to Stephanie Meyer because um, she created these characters that really resonated with a lot of people. We just wanted to fix them. <laughs> and usually if I read a, a flawed universe, I don't want to fix it. I just don't want to read it anymore. When Twilight became a part of Cherish Danae's life, so did fan fiction. So my routine, a lot. Once all the movies had come out, I'd read all the books countless times. I was like, all right, fan fiction is the new thing. And I would read fan fiction on my Kindle until like whatever time and then I would go to sleep. And then in the mornings, I would load a chapter of fan fiction because I didn't have internet on my phone. I only had the Wi-Fi at home. And I would not close the app because I was like, I'm going to lose it once I go to school. And in between classes, I would just read a little bit of that chapter. And then, oh my gosh, if I finished the chapter before I got home, I'd be like, oh my gosh, I'm going to die waiting to see what happens next. The internet has made it easier and easier for Twilight fans and fans in general to find and consume and in many cases produce fan fiction. By the time the first Twilight movie came out in 2008, Fans already had access to social platforms like Tumblr and LiveJournal, as well as the fanfiction repository Wattpad. But the world of fanfiction was not always this accessible, as our next guest points out. Hello. Hey, Michael Chabon, can you tell us the plot of Twilight? I cannot. Writer Michael Chabon has never read Twilight. But long before he was a novelist and screenwriter and the winner of the 2001 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction for his book The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, he wrote fan fiction. The first sustained piece of fiction that I ever wrote was, um, was a Sherlock Holmes story. Uh, it was about Sherlock Holmes and 
Watson meeting Captain Nemo from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and teaming up with him to fight Professor Moriarty, who had some kind of like amazing ironclad ship or something like that. Many years later, Michael became one of the co-creators of the TV series Star Trek Picard. I was looking last night, I was really gratified to see that on the internet, um, there actually are some pieces of fan fiction on this thing that I came up with for the first season of, of Star Trek Picard. This was Order of Romulan Warrior Nuns called the Kawat Milat. And I saw there are like half a dozen pieces of Kawat Milat fan fiction on there now, which is really a great feeling. Although literary homage and pastiche are about as old as literature itself, modern pop culture fan fiction kind of starts with Star Trek. While the original Star Trek TV series was still airing on NBC, Star Trek fans began producing homemade magazines known as fanzines. The very first Star Trek fanzine, Spockanalia, debuted in 1967. Its five issues contain what may be the earliest examples of Star Trek fanfic, alongside nonfiction, poetry, original songs, and speculative diagrams of the Vulcan heart. According to one study, 80 to 90% of the Star Trek fiction in those early 70s Star Trek fanzines was written by women. And it didn't take long before these authors began producing a wealth of stories in which Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock were, let's say, more than just colleagues. If you date, as I do, like modern mass media-driven fandom to Star Trek fandom um, in the wake of the cancellation of the original series, that Kirk slash Spock Fan fiction is there almost instantly. The Kirk slash Spock subgenre gave us the term slash fiction, which we still use to describe fan written stories about same sex relationships between two fictional characters. Some of the less explicit Star Trek fan fiction eventually got collected in book form, and that's where Michael remembers first encountering it. If they use the term fan fiction, I don't, it didn't really register with me. What registered with me was, oh, of course, because when you love something, so much, and you run out of it, you want to make more. Michael points out that this impulse to pick up where some earlier author left off was driving people to create literature long before Star Trek. The term canon, which people now use to describe the official history of a fictional character or universe, the stuff that quote-unquote actually happened to Bella Swan or Sherlock Holmes or Captain Picard, has much deeper roots in human history, like biblical times deep. You can see the New Testament as fan fiction on the Old Testament. You know, there's a certain amount of retconning that goes on, to use another term from the fan lexicon, so that, you know, Christians then in composing the fan fiction that is the New Testament went back and they retconned to a certain degree. They looked back at the Old Testament and they found things that they said, oh, see that when Ezekiel says that in the book of Ezekiel, he's actually talking about Jesus. You know, so this is a very ancient impulse. In other words, the creation of new stories by devotees of previous stories isn't like a weird sideshow to actual literature. It has been, for centuries, the way literature worked. Another great example for me is you look at the Odyssey and the Iliad. So you have the Iliad by Homer, and then Virgil, the great Latin poet, writes his Aeneid, which is just pure fan fiction on the Iliad. You know, he takes his character of Aeneas and just inserts him into the world that was sort of limbed by Homer in the Iliad and the Odyssey. And then, then you know, whatever it was, the 1200s or whatever, Dante comes along in Italy and takes Virgil, the poet who wrote the Aeneid, for a character and makes him a character in his Inferno. Back then, of course, there was nothing stopping Virgil from creating the Iliad expanded universe. No giant corporation owned the rights to Homer's characters and situations. 
By the same token, Star Trek fan fiction was able to flourish because Star Trek itself had been devalued by NBC. There was this dark period between when the original series was canceled and when the first movie came out where there was nothing. And nobody seemed, and corporately, no one seemed interested in Star Trek. And it was left to the fans. And this whole fan world sort of quickly evolved in that gap where the corporate overlords were looking the other way. And so the fans did own the fandom for a little while. These days, our corporate overlords leave no monetizable intellectual property behind. There is no world in which something like Star Trek would just be abandoned for fans to mess with. In a sense, everything is fan fiction now, particularly in the world of big-ticket genre entertainment. The Marvel MCU movies are modern-day remixes of comics created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby in the 1960s. Prequels and reboots fill out the narrative gaps that used to inspire fans to produce fan fiction. Nowadays, big media companies are looking to the world of fan fiction for new IP, which in turn opens new doors for amateur writers to turn pro. No one that I knew really liked writing. It wasn't kind of a popular hobby or something that I thought was very cool. So I thought this is really weird and embarrassing and I am weird and embarrassing. So I'm just not going to tell people that I'm doing this. This is Beth Riekels. She's a novelist from Wales. I would tend to write a lot when everyone else in the house had gone to bed. So I'd sort of wait for the house to fall quiet and then I'd sort of sneak my laptop open and I'd be touch typing in in like the darkness. And then, you know, it got to a point where I discovered Wattpad and I'd started posting on there anonymously, thought maybe this isn't so weird because I've just discovered a whole other community of other teenagers who like it. When she was 15 years old, Beth started writing a long story called The Kissing Booth. And in 2011, she began posting chapters of that story on Wattpad. It wasn't technically fan fiction, but it was Twilight-inspired. I always say that I started writing it because of Twilight, because it was when Twilight was this massive phenomenon with paranormal romances in YA, and everything felt like it was vampires, werewolves, fallen angels, whatever else you could think of, to the point where I'd read so many of them that I just kind of, as much as I loved them, needed a little bit of a break. Beth wanted to write something about normal human high school kids falling in love. When she was 17, Penguin Random House offered her a book deal. They wanted to publish The Kissing Booth and Beth's next two books. When news broke that Netflix would be producing a Kissing Booth movie, Beth was at her day job. I remember kind of taking a break, going to get a coffee, checking my personal emails, and there it is, the announcement, and I missed it. (laughs) I kind of still couldn't do anything about it because I had to go back to work. Netflix has since made two sequels to The Kissing Booth, also based on Riekel's books. And Beth is sure that none of this would have happened if not for communities like Wattpad and the supportive readers she found there. I think partly because I would never have had that confidence in myself and my writing ability. Like, I don't think I, I would have ever felt, oh, what I'm writing is good enough to be published. And also, I personally can do this and I have the guts to try and go out and you know, try and achieve this dream for myself. A couple episodes ago, we told you the story of how a screenwriter and some experienced Hollywood executives tried and failed to adapt Twilight before it was published or popular, and how they missed the mark in part because they had no way of knowing what an audience would end up liking about the story. Because of Wattpad, Beth Riekel's story had fans before it had a publisher. The Kissing Booth movies are not the best-reviewed films in Netflix history, but they are true to Beth's books, because that is what people responded to. 
the authentic voice of an actual teenager. One of my favorite comments that I see now as like a reaction to the book or the movie or whatever is, this feels like a Wattpad book or this feels like it was written by a 15 year old. And I'm like, you are correct. That is absolutely right. So the opening number lyrics were sparkle and shine just over and over again, like four to five times, followed by just drivel. This is Jasmine Peck. She's now a television writer. But long before that, when she was a kid, she was a Twilight fan who one day decided to take Stephanie Meyer's story and adapt it for the stage. From what I remember, nothing about it was good except for I could go for the name. Pretty much I like took some gel pens and I sat down and I wrote sparkle on a piece of notebook paper. (laughs) And then every time I thought of a song or a moment or something that related to Twilight, I would just like write it down and throw it in the notebook. If I were reviewing it for Playbill, I would maybe like stick it under the table in terms of off, 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 off Broadway. Although the text of Sparkle has been lost to history, Jasmine was able to read us some Twilight-inspired prose fiction she wrote around the same time, including a story in which a werewolf sings and plays guitar. He strummed several notes and then began to develop a pattern, switched for a chorus, and came back to a different tempo. Looking at Jay, he started to sing something and hesitated. Maybe I should go get you some earplugs. All in all, he wasn't really that bad, just concerned about Jay thinking he was sappy or stupid or the like. He smiled a little and played from the beginning. Actually, he was pretty good. He just never sang, ever. The real music had died in him until now. And now, he couldn't help himself. So, yeah, that's that's some shit I wrote. There's also, like, in between the lyrics of the song, he's, like, howling <laughs> as he's singing as part of the songs it's like (laughs) because he's a werewolf we're both laughing about it because it's a werewolf playing guitar but jasmine also admits that writing this stuff was actually pretty important when she looks at it now she can see her younger self working some things out there's a freedom and flexibility in being able to have a character that was a woman and having a character that was a man. And at the time, like, sort of the politics of gender and sexuality were very, like, stringent in my mind. And so having characters of different genders who were involved with characters respectively of different genders, I think allowed me to explore, like, my queerness in a way that felt acceptable within the parameters of my existence at the time. And only really looking back and, like, reading through some of the stuff was I like, oh yeah, this is very queer behavior. (laughs) Big time book and movie deals aside, this might be the most important thing about the kind of creativity we see within Twilight fandom. In paying tribute to the thing they love and imagining what it would be like to crawl inside the story, fans like Jasmine were working out who they were going to be. They were exploring and expressing their sexuality in spaces that were public but also offered the safety of anonymity. And by shifting and recasting and gender or genre bending the Twilight story, they were creating alternate worlds in which major media properties were answerable to their preferences and values. Twilight showed mass media gatekeepers in the publishing and movie industries that the enthusiasm of young women could create a blockbuster. But fan fiction taught that same audience to expect more from a story. 
And the world we all live and watch things in today, where creators and corporate intellectual property barons are increasingly held accountable for what stories represent and who they represent and how, it kind of looks like the world fanfiction made. In fanfiction, if I write a story where all the characters from the Twilight universe are hanging out with their new friend Alex Papadimus, that's called a self-insert. There's also a subgenre of fanfic known as Y-slash-N, for your name, in which the protagonist's name is left out so that the reader can imagine themselves as the main character. But what if you want to become a particular fictional character and then move about the world as that person? You can't do it as easily in real life as you can in fiction, but cosplayers get pretty close. So I am a Twilight cosplayer. I play Alice Cullen for a cosplay group called The Olympic Coven. We are the world's premier Twilight acting troupe. This is Cosplayer VL. We are the in-house entertainment for Forever Twilight and Forks, which is the world's largest Twilight fan festival. It takes place in Forks, Washington, and it coincides with the weekend closest to Bella Swan's birthday. Forks, of course, is the northwest Washington town that Stephanie Meyer picked off a map and used as the setting for the Twilight books, even though at the time she'd never been there. At Forever Twilight, cosplayers like the Olympic Coven appear on panels and at meet and greets and other organized events. They also just kind of walk around in character, enhancing people's immersion in the whole deal. It's like being a Disney princess for Twilight. And when we first put the Olympic Coven together, that was definitely something that we wanted to be able to provide for fans. We knew that people were traveling to Forks, looking for that Twilight experience, wanting to feel like they could look around a corner and a a vampire might be there waiting for them. Dressing up as the Twilight vampire Alice Cullen involves a whole lot of time and effort acquiring and maintaining a full screen-accurate wardrobe, including custom contact lenses that cost like $350 a pair. But it allows V to tap into aspects of herself that would otherwise remain inaccessible. Unlike Alice, V does not have precognitive visions of the future, But as Alice, she can do things that V can't do. I would say Alice is my personality probably turned up to 11. And I'm a lot more fearless. For example, Alice is a really good dancer in canon, but I'm not. So, you know, if I'm thrust out onto the dance floor, you know, I'm a lot more brave dancing as Alice than I am dancing as myself because I know people want to see it. She is probably one of the most amazing I've ever seen. She just embraces and embodies not only the look of Alice, but the feel of Alice. And I think that that is so special and difficult to do. This is Chandra Muchi. She's also a cosplayer and makes annual appearances at the Forever Twilight Festival. She's from Salt Lake City, and she plays Aro, the sinister leader of Twilight's vampire Illuminati, known as the Volturi. I'm a Volturi purist. I got in it for them. I'm still in it for them all the fan fiction I read and wrote, and it really is just them. And you know what? It still is them. In the Twilight movies, Aro is played by the British actor Michael Sheen. And it was really Michael Sheen who got Chandra into Twilight. I kind of had some untreated mental health problems in high school that we didn't really know about or know how to help with yet. So I was going through a depressive episode and my mother said, we're gonna go see a movie. And quite actually dragged me out of my bedroom and took me to a movie. And the movie was Twilight New Moon. But I was on my phone for the entire movie because I just didn't want to be involved. And my phone died. And I was like, God, God, I hung it up and I was all mad. And then I heard a voice. (laughs) What a happy surprise. Bella is alive after all. Isn't that wonderful? And I just looked up and there he was. 
and it was Michael Sheen in his full vampire glory, and I was so magnetized to him. I can't really explain it. It's, it's strange. It's like, it's the feeling of falling in love without the romantic attachment. I fell into the abyss immediately, and you know what? I didn't mind it so much. That moment in the movie theater changed the course of Chandra's life. First, she began writing fan fiction about Aro. Thousands and thousands of words of it. I had a really hard time in school making new friends or keeping friends once I met them or engaging in extracurricular activities, things like that. And so the fact that I could write at my own pace, at my own time, in my own environment was amazing. I remember the first time I ever went, oh my gosh, I'm actually a fan of something, was when the trailer for Breaking Dawn Part 2 was supposed to come out and I waited until midnight for it to drop on the website and I'm sitting there like hitting the refresh button, like waiting for the trailer to drop because I wanted to see Arrow. In 2014, Chandra went with a friend to Forever Twilight, although back then the town still called it Stephanie Meyer Day. Chandra had always liked costumes, so she went as Arrow and decided to really do it up. That meant getting details like the tailoring of Aro's regal, villainous robes exactly right. But she also got so deep into character that the Forks Chamber of Commerce asked her to come back next year as the festival's official Aro. Since then, she's attended every year. Aro's vampire superpower is tactile telepathy. He can touch your hand and read your entire life story, which is also kind of what happens when you dress up as Aro and walk around a convention full of Twilight fans. I've had a lot of really fun and meaningful interactions with fans because not just do they want to talk to me as Arrow, but they just want to talk to me about them and about their journey and how they got in Twilight. And I've heard so many stories about growth and overcoming obstacles. And I've heard terrible, tragic stories about loss and abuse and death. And they probably wouldn't tell me if I was me, but they want to tell Arrow because he's 3000 years old and he has wisdom to impart. Or he can pat their hand and say, I'm so sorry to hear about that, but I'm so impressed with how far you've come. Things like that. Do you find that you're more able to navigate the world more confidently or more comfortably when you're in the headspace of being Arrow? Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah. And it probably comes from the fact that there is a sense of authority with Arrow. So I can walk into places and people pay attention to me, you know, and they will part the way, so to say, and I can speak to anyone I want to. When I walk in, people notice because I'm who I am. I, I fell into Twilight at a really, really meaningful time in my life when things really needed to start to take shape. My life has taken shape and now Twilight is a volume on the shelf of the fondness of my life. I love a happy ending. They are so rare. Sometimes a fantasy can almost reach off the screen and grab us, out here in the real world. And that's where we're going next, out into the real world. This is like Disneyland for Twilight fans. <laughs> if they could get some sort of like wolf ride, we'd be there. <laughs> we're going to the real Forks, Washington, home of the fictional Bella Swan for IRL Interaction. We're actually meeting all for the first time. We know each other's names. We know somewhat what they look like. <laughs> for historical context. We had one summer here, it was all of a sudden the town was full of goth chicks and nobody knew what the hell was going on, you know? It's like, what is the deal? And to maybe redeem what is messed up about Twilight. It's now become to the point to where it's kind of like in our hands 
to fix the things that we ignored for so long. From Higher Ground, this is The Big Hit Show. It's written and hosted by me, Alex Papadimus, and produced by Western Sound. Colin McNulty is our showrunner. Producers are Sabrina Fang, Lori Galaretta, and Taylor Jones. Our production assistant is Stella Hartman. Alex McInnes is our composer, sound designer, and mix engineer. Savannah Wright is our fact checker. Our theme is composed by Dan Leone. The executive producer is Ben Adair. Executive producers for Higher Ground are Dan Fearman, Anna Holmes, Mukta Mohan, and Janae Marable. Executive producers for Spotify are Daniel Eck, Don Ostroff, Courtney Holt, and Julie McNamara. Special thanks to Joe Paulson, Eric Spiegelman, and Jenna Levin. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.